welcome to Moment of Science, please. I'm Ellis. So if this is your first time here, our podcast series introduces you to researchers and their research at U of T, its affiliated research centers and hospitals. So today we'd like to welcome Dr. Patricia Brubaker, Professor of Physiology at U of T. You can check out her recent paper titled Circadian Rhythms and the Gastrointestinal Tract, Relationship to Metabolism and Gut Hormones, which we have linked in our description. So let's get right to it. Dr. Brubaker, could you please start us off by introducing yourself and telling the audience a little more about you and what really interests you about the general field of physiology? So thanks so much for inviting me to speak today, Ellis. I'm really pleased to be here. So I, as you said, am a professor in the department of, actually departments of physiology and medicine at the University of Toronto. I have uh, been at the University of Toronto for uh, quite a few years now. I've been a professor since 1985. And um, yes, it feels like a lifetime sometimes. Uh, It's a wonderful lifetime. So I did my PhD studies at McGill University and really um, fell in love at that point in time with research as a possible career. Uh, When I went into research, I wasn't sure exactly where I was going to end up. But by the time I finished my PhD, I was in love with this notion of research and therefore did a postdoc and then continued as an academic in research And um, so that's really my education. How I ended up in physiology was really an interesting sort of route. I actually started out my undergrad being interested in organic chemistry. And through that was introduced to biochemistry, uh, which is really the organic chemistry of life, if you will. And uh, during my PhD studies, really focused on what turned out to be a physiological system So um, even though I was in the Department of Biochemistry, I was really using a physiology approach. So when I started as a faculty member, it was a logical progression for me to move into physiology, where I use a wide variety of techniques from molecular to cellular to whole animal and even occasionally human studies, um, all addressed Uh, at answering a question about how a system works in the whole body. So I I really love the integrated nature of physiology. Because your path shows how I think everything is linked together and everything has a relationship. So how did you choose your specific area of studying in endocrine and diabetes? Uh, Equally an interesting and, and rather unexpected path, I guess, Um, I initially started out in endocrinology for my PhD studies because I really um, loved the work that that professor, my supervisor, was doing, and I was introduced to him in my undergraduate career. So when I wanted to do research, it made sense for me to approach him about doing studies in research in endocrinology. Um, But while I was a first-year PhD student, um, I quite unexpectedly developed type 1 diabetes myself. And I decided, even though I was in endocrinology for research, that I wanted uh, post-PhD to really focus on the uh, endocrinology-specific discipline of diabetes. And so that's really how, uh, when I came to Toronto, I um, 
started doing postdoctoral studies with a um, Dr. Mladen Branich, who was quite a well-known researcher in diabetes at that point in time. And then I continued those studies as um, uh, an investigator with my own laboratory. So your research is both a combination of your interest and very relevant to you. So what has led you to your specific interests in studying the factors determining tissue-specific synthesis, secretion, and bioactivities of regulatory peptides? Right. So, so when I was a postdoctoral fellow, I, um, the one Vranich, the man with whom I worked, was studying something that was then known as extra pancreatic glucagon. And it, it was a very poorly characterized substance. And in fact, while I was a postdoc, the gene was cloned. And it turned out that the gene expressed not only glucagon, but also two novel peptides, which are called glucagon-like peptide 1, GOP1, and GOP2. And I have, since that time, remained fascinated with the biology, if you will, of both GOP1 and GOP2. Uh, because shortly after uh, I started studying these peptides, it turned out that uh, GOP-1 was actually your body's natural anti-diabetic peptide. And there was my link, right, from yes. extra-pancreatic glucagon now to GOP-1, which was anti-diabetic. And so I've continued to study GOP-1 throughout my entire career. Um, and not only is it naturally anti-diabetic in your body, stimulating insulin and reducing body weight and having cardioprotective effects. So all of the things that are good, in particular for people with type 2 diabetes. Um, but in addition, long-acting GOP-1 receptor agonists were developed in the early 1990s that meant that uh, GOP-1 mimetics began to be used for patients with type 2 diabetes. And, and so there was this very exciting clinical application that happened with GOP-1. Uh, similarly, the same story with GOP-2, um, I was doing some work with one of my colleagues at Mount Sinai Hospital, Dr. Daniel Drucker, and we discovered that GOP-2 stimulates intestinal growth. And again, a similar story where I was interested in the biology of GOP-2, but in fact, uh, because of its potent growth effects in the intestine, long-acting GOP-2 receptor agonists have now been developed and implemented in the clinic for the treatment of patients who have something called short bowel syndrome, which is basically when you've had large sections of your intestine removed and uh, you can't eat food by mouth anymore. And so what GOP-2 does in these patients is help them grow new intestines, sometimes to the point where they can stop intravenous fluids and intravenous feeding and start actually eating food and, and taking fluids in by mouth. So again, a very clinical uh, translation of the very basic uh, biology that I'm interested in for these peptides. Yes, and I think you've also seen in person how the impact and the progression of research has proceeded over the years. So that's amazing. So I'm going to dive a little deeper into your research and into the specifics. One of your recent papers is titled The Circadian Rhythm and the Gastrointestinal Tract Relationship to Metabolism and Gut Hormones. So could you give us a brief summary as to what this paper is about? 
So this paper is a review article of a field in which um, my lab now has a great interest, which is the circadian rhythms, specifically as related to the hormones that we're interested in, GLP-1 and GLP-2. And, and the review article was written by three very talented trainees in my laboratory, and I give them full credit for this article. So the premise behind the article which reviews the field, but, um, and my interest in the field is that people who have circadian disruption, so for example, shift workers, uh, who instead of being the way normal humans work, which is when you're awake during the light, you eat, and when you're asleep during the dark, you eat. And circadian uh, shift workers are circadian disrupted because it changes that normal biology and puts them in a situation where when they should be sleeping and not eating, they are actually awake and then that's when they're eating. And so this disrupts this normal relationship between food intake, uh, the hormones that are secreted in response to food intake. And then if you imagine, for example, GOP-1 stimulating insulin, insulin causing deposition of those nutrients. So normally during the day when you eat, you, you eat a meal, you release GLP-1, it stimulates insulin, and insulin causes those nutrients to be deposited in your muscle and your fat and your liver. And all of those systems are integrated together to work in a seamless coordinated fashion. In circadian disruption, when you're eating at night now, your body isn't optimized to take in those nutrients, release those hormones and deposit those nutrients. And so shift workers for, again, for example, have a much higher risk of developing obesity and type two diabetes um, because it disrupts their normal physiology for this food intake system. So we're really interested in what controls this circadian system and how food intake is linked to the release of the hormones, which are linked to the release of insulin, et cetera. And we're really in the lab studying the biology of how that system works, again, at the molecular level, the cellular level, and then at the whole animal level as well. I think the circadian rhythm definitely interacts with a lot of different processes in our body, and endocrine is definitely really important. Yeah, it, it does. And I will say that these are incredibly difficult studies to do. And I personally would never be able to stay awake all night for the studies that my really amazing trainees in the lab do. We have some studies that run for 48 straight hours every four hours. These uh, graduate students and undergrad students, lots of undergrad students and postdocs uh, are incredibly dedicated to these studies. Yes, I think from this kind of research, we can see the passion in people. For many of us students who haven't been in research, our idea of research is often very limited to wet labs like pipetting or roles like that. So having been in the research field for such a long time and as a senior researcher, we were hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about the different aspects of preclinical research and what you deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, so preclinical research is what we do in the lab, right? And in, in large part, that what that really means is we're not testing something in humans, um, which, which would be, for example, a phase one, two, three trial of a new drug in a human, for example. Um, so 
the, the experiments are exceedingly varied. And yes, unfortunately, a lot of it is just repeat, repeat, repeat. Uh, we do a lot of molecular analyses where you're pipetting into 340 384 well plates, for example. Um, we do a lot of radioimmunoassays where you're dealing with test tubes. We do a lot of uh, tissue morphology studies where we have students who are counting the number of proliferating cells at different times of day and night, for example, in the intestines from our, our animals. Um, and, and again, as well, we do um, also at different times of day and night, looking at the, the normal physiology of what happens to the gut hormones when you, for example, drink a, a glucose solution, and then how that changes if you do it uh, at, in the middle of the night, when, a, again, the abnormal feeding patterns, for example, um, and we do this in humans as well. We've done a few human studies where we've kept humans awake all night and, and given them food in the middle of the night as compared to food in the middle of the day. Uh, so all of these, I think, are really what we would consider to be preclinical studies. But which study requires which approach is going to vary depending on the study. Got it. There's definitely a lot of variations between different studies. And I think I've noticed that too with research papers, reading the methodology and seeing the differences. Yeah, I, I, I would add that I, it's what, I think what's really exciting about what we do in my lab is that we do something in a mouse cell model, for example, and then we try and reproduce it in human cell model. And then we go to mouse tissues and we try to reproduce our findings in human tissues. And sometimes we'll do it in rat tissues as well. And then we go to the animals and we'll do it in mice and we'll do it in rats. And then eventually we say, is it still true in humans? And, and so what's really nice is to being able to do this, this step back, big integrated picture and say that the, the, the preclinical work that we do in the lab, in the work in the cells, we can take that to an animal and we can take that up again sometimes to a human and still see the same patterns and see the same effects, which means that it's meaningful. It's not just a one-off, one cell line, but not another cell line. I think this is really important too, to be able to take something at the molecular level, put it in animal models, and then finding this link again. And I think this is what a lot of people are fascinated by in research, to see this impact in humans. I know that you also co-authored another paper titled The Discovery of Insulin Revisited, Lessons for the Modern Era. Could you tell us a little bit more about this paper and what led you to write about this historical significance of insulin? 2021 is the 100th anniversary of the discovery of insulin by Banting and Best, McLeod and Collop in my department, the Department of Physiology. First of all, this is a really big year for the Department of Physiology, and it led to our one and only Nobel Prize uh, for the discovery of insulin. So it, it's a really exciting year in terms of being able to celebrate the discovery of insulin. A little bit of a damper on the um, in-house celebrations, unfortunately, because of, of COVID. Um, but what has happened as a result of this centenary is that there have been lots of invitations to speak publicly about the discovery of insulin. 
And this paper, which was written for the journal Clinical Investigation, was actually um, an invitation to one of my colleagues, Dr. Gary Lewis at uh, UHN, to write a review article about the history of the discovery of insulin. And so Dr. Lewis invited me to co-write this paper with him. And basically what we did in the paper is we talked a, a little bit about how insulin was discovered, the fact that Banting was a general surgeon who'd just come back from World War I. He was you know, unsuccessful in setting up his own medical practice, but he had an idea in the middle of the night. And, and he wrote that idea down. We still have the original notes um, that he made. Um, and he thought, this is how maybe I could help uh, cure people who have type 1 diabetes. And in uh, 1921 and before, type 1 diabetes was a death sentence. You died if you got type 1 diabetes uh, because you had no insulin. You had no way of depositing the nutrients that you took in in your diet. And uh, so it was, a ho- it was horrible. It was, it was literally a death sentence for, um, in particular, mostly children who, um, when type 1 diabetes mostly develops. And so he had this idea and he came to the Department of Physiology because he knew Professor McLeod, he, Banting had done his medical degree at U of T and he came and he said, I have an idea. And McLeod sort of said, well, you know what? It's an interesting idea. Let's see if it's work. Let's see if it works. And he gave Banting a lab to work in over the course of the summer. And he hired an undergraduate student or someone who just graduated, Charles Best, to be his lab assistant. And through May and June and July, Banting and Best worked um, quite tirelessly trying to figure out how to collect the pancreas and make an extract that could treat high blood sugar levels in their experimental animals, which were diabetic dogs. And by July 30th, they were able to lower blood sugar levels in dogs. Now, this was a very impure preparation. It wasn't entirely reliable. It didn't always work. They tried lots of different approaches. And then McLeod in the late fall of of 1921 um, brought in a biochemist, Collip, whose task was to improve the purification method. And so Collip started to work on that. And by January of 1922, uh, January 23rd specifically, they had a preparation that was sufficiently pure that not only did it lower blood sugar levels in diabetic dogs, but it actually successfully lowered blood sugar levels in the first human who was ever successfully treated with insulin, Leonard Thompson. And so going from a death sentence, Leonard Thompson lived for another 13 years. Um, He eventually died of pneumonia. But many of the young um, children who were treated with insulin during that first summer of um, late spring and, and summer of 1922 many of them lived for another 60, 50, 60, 70 years. Um, So it really was a a miracle. It was a cure from death. Now, it's not a cure for diabetes. There are other problems associated with diabetes. But at that point in time, type 1 diabetes was a death sentence, and insulin prevented that death. So it's a pretty exciting story. For sure. I think sometimes these are the examples that show us how an idea can make such a huge impact by research and to create this 
clinical significance. And it's also special to researchers that they would celebrate, you would celebrate an 100-year anniversary for insulin by writing a research paper. So that's definitely special too. And of course, I have a very personal motivation, right? I would yes. be if it wasn't for the discovery of insulin. So it, it's been a pretty exciting year all around on a personal level, as well as on a research level, and then on a departmental level. Yes, that's for sure. So seeing all these different topics in literature on uh, endocrine and metabolism, what do you think are some future topics that you might be interested in studying? That's a really tough question because, in fact, I love what I'm doing now. And so serendipity happens. Sometimes you make an observation and you your research sort of takes a, a turn and you go around a corner. And I would say that happened when we discovered GLP-2 and intestinal growth. I had never expected to be studying intestinal growth. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, you went around that corner and half my lab now studies intestinal growth, the other half studies diabetes. But those two topics alone, GOP-1 and GOP-2, I think have still have sufficient interest to me and sufficient numbers of unresolved questions that I'm quite happy to keep asking questions about the physiology of those two hormones. They, they fascinate me. Uh, they are my passion. Um, and, and they're enough for me, at least for the moment. Got it. Yes, there's still definitely a lot of gaps in research that we would love to know more about and hear more about too. Yeah, and there are always more questions. And one of the things that's really great about having a career in research is that I'm surrounded by young minds who always challenge me and say, yes, but what about, or what if, or why is that? And and so we're always challenging dogma and saying, can we think about this a different way? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that lots of students are very interested in the same topic and would love to learn more about it. And this leads actually into my next question. Many students are interested in research positions. Do you have any tips or advice for students who are looking to gain research experience either throughout the school year or during the summer? It's a really good question, and I, I, I give, um, for the Undergraduate Physiology Student Association, I actually give a seminar every year about why you might want to think about doing research and how to go about it. So I can't answer that question in a simple podcast, but so here's sort of in a nutshell, I would say, why would you think about doing research? The first is to find out if you like it, right? The f- First and foremost, because it can be a tremendous career if it turns out to be something that you like. And it's probably better to figure out whether you like it or not earlier rather than later. Okay, so that would be the first thing. Um, some people have to take research as part of their course programs. So you have to do it and you find out if you like it. Uh, research is a great way to get to know a professor really well and to get to know how a lab actually works. So you, you rather than just a, a course-based project, basically you, you get to explore a little bit and you get to think about the literature and how the literature informs what you're doing in the lab and vice versa. Um, and um, so I think it's a great experience to have. 
Okay, how do you do it? it that's, that's a little bit harder, especially during COVID. Okay, but the bottom line is you need to contact professors. You need to do that email professionally, courteously, grammatically, attach a copy of your resume, attach a copy of your transcript, just an unofficial screenshot of your transcript. Because if a professor is interested in you, they're going to ask for that information. So don't make the professor work, right? Do, give it to them right off the top. And make the letter personal and say, you know, dear Dr. So-and-so, I'm really interested in your research because my mother has type 2 diabetes or because you were my professor in course 30X, right? So personalize that. And then take a look at PubMed and look at a couple of the papers that they've written recently. Look at the abstracts. See what kind of research they do. Are you interested in that research? So what you want to do in a short cover letter is convince that researcher that they want to talk to you more about doing research. And, and that's for the summer um, and or for a research project in the winter. I think the approach is exactly the same. For your lab, for example, do students usually come with an idea in mind or is it more I'm interested in this research so I'm going to ask to learn more about it? Most professors already have grant money for specific projects. So while a student can come in with ideas, it, it does happen. It's far more likely that you come into a lab because you're interested in the general area and then you're assigned to a specific project, usually a small part of an ongoing project. So an undergrad student might work with a, a graduate student or might work with a postdoctoral fellow to do a small part of their bigger project. Okay. And would undergrad students, for example, be able to get a lot of interaction with the professor or is it more towards the graduate student? It, it really depends on the lab that you end up in. Um, so if it's a smaller lab where the professor is in the lab all the time, then you might see a lot more of the professor. If it's a big lab or if the professor has clinical responsibilities that take them outside of the lab, then you might see a little less of the professor. So these are things to think about when you contact a professor is what kind of experience am I going to get? Who's going to be my supervisor? Am I going to see the, you, the professor, on a daily basis or a weekly basis? Okay, so all, all very good questions to ask and to think about yourself in advance. What kind of supervisor would I like to work with? Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's really important to be able to meet the professor before committing to a research project or a position or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. And even, you know, even if it's just by Zoom right now, I, I don't know of any professor who would hire someone without having a meeting. And in fact, um, when, when I bring students into the lab, I, if I'm if I, putting an undergraduate student with a graduate student, then I invite them to meet the graduate student as well. Because you work together very closely. You have to like each other in order to have a successful working relationship. Personal communication is important. Got it. So we're getting close to the end of our podcast. And we have one final question that we're asking all of our guests. So do you have a favorite scientist? And if so, why? I would, I would say that I don't have a favorite scientist per se. 
But a few years ago, I read a book which was called Nobel Prize Women in Science. And it was about, I think at that point in time, the nine women who had won Nobel Prizes. The number was very, very small. And out of that book, my, my favorite women scientists, the people for whom I had the most awe and respect, were the women who crept into classrooms and hid underneath desks because women weren't allowed to register in medical programs, for example, at university. So they had to learn by hiding underneath desks and listening to the lectures. And um, so I I just have an enormous respect for the women who preceded me um, and were successful, tremendously successful in science against all odds. They they were just amazing women. And they were trailblazers trail breakers, I, I will say, uh, for every woman in science and inspiration for, of course, anyone who is in science. For sure. I think for all of us, the trails that people have broken before us has led us to where we are today. So we pay great respect to all of them to find where we are now. Absolutely. So with that, Dr. Verbaker, thank you so much for being here and sharing your research. So this does conclude our podcast. Thank you to everyone who has joined us. So if you found this podcast interesting or informative, please look forward to our coming episodes. Have a great day.